And right, right now, um, I've been doing a lot of thinking about that when there's protesters that are taking different approaches and, right. and thinking about what, what is the right approach from, from a spiritual perspective. But what about the issue of suffering? Do you feel that that's something that also is not discussed? And do we have something to bring to the table regarding our own experience of suffering and maybe the, the, the spiritual uh, connection with suffering that can help um, our patients? Because um, I, I wonder if, if you haven't gone through too many tragedies in your life or too many challenges, how is it that you're able to truly um, even um, internalize some of the stuff that, the, that we see in, in, in the crisis uh, moments that, that we're out there with the family? I, well, I think I think empathy, and and even if I haven't like even if I haven't had a suffering, being really, I'm willing to to feel. You know, the Bible says, "Weep with those who weep." You you know, you may not know their sorrow, but if if you're just sorry for their their suffering, if you have the empathetic muscle, uh, just just be just hurting, uh, hurting for them, for hurting to see them crying, you know, hurting to see their suffering. I don't think I don't think we have to have their experience in order to connect to empathy. I, I don't think, in other words, if I'm, you know, I can have just as much empathy uh, for a African American family suffering with racism, but I don't have to. I don't, I don't have to have had racism experience to feel empathy. And so having the, the, the wisdom of empathy, the, the gift of empathy, um, praying for it, uh, asking to, to just be moved with empathy and human pain. We don't necessarily need to have had that particular experience, but just to feel moved by their sorrow is very moving to me. Uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't feeling very empathetic with the whole COVID-19. I was not empathetic at all. I mean, I've been like, I'm okay. You know why? Because I was like, welcome to my childhood. When COVID-19 started, I had no empathy. I was like, welcome to my childhood. As a matter of fact, in Nicaragua, I was under a bed and, uh, you know, bullets were flying everywhere and I didn't get to, you know, you're lucky you, your kids get to go out. I had to be under a bed or in a closet where my head would get shot at. So when, when all these people started shutting down, I was like, eh, welcome to my childhood. So, so what, you know, and I, be, and then um, I, didn't, I didn't knew that wasn't right. I was like, well, I need to be empathetic because I can't relate to this. Ah, you know, oh my God, this guy's fault to me. It was like, you know, come on, this is, this isn't really a whole lot. But then I began to really think about it and say, I want to have empathy for the life that they have not been through this. And that wasn't, that was, I began, my heart began to soften, you know, from that spot because I was like, I, then I began to think, my goodness, I was privileged. I was privileged to have had that much suffering in my childhood because uh, it became integrated uh, post-trauma integration, if you want to use that word. And from that, I, I felt like, I could feel sorrow for people who haven't had this much suffering. I could feel sorrow because then, then I was like, how in the world could I make from, from suffering so much? Then I could, I could find that at place of privilege. I really do. I find myself, man, I'm privileged that I suffer that much because now I can sustain space. I can, I can hold people uh, in, in, in resiliency and, and help. But then, but then George, George Floyd happened, you know, and I, I, that broke my heart. And I was like, 
you know, a bit removed and, you know, empathetic. But when George Floyd happened, I cried. There was a crack in my heart. And I literally, and I'm not African-American. I've never, because I'm so light-skinned, I, you know, I also have Latino white girl privilege, you know, you know, because I'm a light-skinned Latina. So I've had some kind of, oh, she's Greek, she's European, she's Italian. So I've had those little privileges, you know. But when George Floyd died, it broke my heart. I just, I had to cry. Like that was the, the catalyst. And I, and, and I haven't suffered racism, but, but just moving into uh, the grief of the world. I have to be connected to the grief of the world. There's grief in nature. There's grief in, in society. And I have, if I'm going to serve uh, the people, I have to connect to them. I have to find a way. And I said, oh my God. And I, I said, what's going on? I, I couldn't. And then finally my heart just cracked open. And I said, uh, I needed to feel this weep, weeping for George Floyd and, 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 and his horrible, horrible lynching, the public lynching. And uh, it, it just, I broke down. But I think connecting to the sorrow, I said, no, I need to connect to the sorrow. I don't need to observe it. I'm observing it. Like I was observing COVID-19. I was like, all right, look at y'all freaking out. <laughs> and I wasn't. And then I began to, to ask God to show me why was I so observant and not compassion, not, not, not entering into that sorrow. And the Holy Spirit said, you're privileged. You, you have had a lot of suffering. You have had harnessed a lot of strength. And, and uh, you need to feel sad that they're sad. And I did. I found it in me. I, I began to find it in me. But, but George Floyd really broke my heart. And I think uh, asking God, if we're people of God, we're people of mystery, we're people that we're connected to the universe, then the universe, as it's feeling the sorrow of people, we have to feel that sorrow too, you know? So I think just, just being empathetically, not necessarily, oh, I had that experience so I can connect. Well, I don't necessarily think that's, I don't necessarily think that's true. Was there another part to this question or was that it? <laughs> Well, I'm glad that you went into the the biggest crux of, of what's happening right now. This this uh, program um, is going to be broadcast at a different time, so I'm I'm kind of building up uh, my response to the George Floyd. Um, the The term would be tragedy, because it it brought to the forefront the suffering of a lot of people that has yep. been gone that's been dismissed, and yep. you know I was I was standing back looking at it trying to make sense of, of what happened because if you um, what i've realized is that unless you have experienced it yourself it doesn't hurt as much i'm glad that um you know some of us have the sensitivity to to be empathic and to put ourselves in other people's experiences but until it hasn't directly affected you yeah. it's really easy to be like well that's their their challenge but there was a family that yeah, was interviewed on tv yeah. that that they had adopted three african-american children and they didn't even think about it. They went and started protesting because they saw their children as right. possible victims in the future. Right. And, um, right. and when you think about Hispanic children, depending on where they live or how they look, that, you know, they might not be as much risk or what they're doing. Right. So, um, so it's easy to say, well, that's not what I, uh, be involved in or what I would experience. 
but to be that callous means that you have very little love for humanity because right. what the so more you study the suffering of, of African Americans in this part of the world, you realize that uh, all they're asking for is respect and access to the same rights as everyone else. And when that doesn't happen, how do you expect for people to react? It, you know, it's easy to say, well, we all need to stay cool and, try and collected and try to, you know, talk it through. But there comes to a point, it's like a boiling uh, pot that, um, there's been so much pressure and there's been so much, so many injustices that it's going to boil over and it is going to uh, suddenly, uh, if you, if you want to dismiss it and push it down, it's finally going to uh, slap you in the face. And I think it's um, before all this happened, you and I were talking about the, the immigrant community and the Latino community and mm -hmm. how the Latino community did not have uh, the same type of organizational skills as the african-american community or even the lgbt community right, that uh, right. we're all divided and everybody's doing their own thing and everybody's mm -hmm. picking sides or what i realized is that we're so um so much trying to assimilate and so much trying yeah. to be accepted that why would we put ourselves in 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 that um target um that suddenly you start speaking out and you start bringing attention and justices and you're easily dismissed Oh, you're just a rebel rouser. You're just um, someone who's not fully integrated into society, or or something like that. Or they go with the stereotypes, um, you know, as as part of of your upbringing or your personality mm -hmm. type or whatever. When yeah, <laughs> I'm an eight, uh, whatever. You know, the Myers Briggs. That's why you do that because you're a challenger. You know, that's what I get from my CPE program. I was told, well, you're a you're a, whatever the number was. I forgot. So, no wonder you challenge things because you're an eight. <laughs> so instead of realizing is that you challenge it because you have that sensitivity and like we have a sensitivity to feel for people. We have sensitivity for what's wrong because we come from, from challenging places where your voice is not heard. And, you know, when, when you try to like in the spectrum between police uh, actually does their job and police um, commits crimes, we come from countries where they're mostly on the crime uh, side so so mm -hmm. we feel that yeah. police here is great compared to the the other stuff that, that we have heard of yeah. or, or experienced but yeah. where as as spiritual people as moral people where do we draw the line it's like enough is enough like that we have to get involved because i was also taking a step back with the uh concern about immigrant children and and the displacing of families or the or not uh, reunifying kids with their families. I was, I, I've been involved in that in the past and I felt like yeah. I was kind of burned out because burned you out. really have your hands tied, you can't do much. And, and protesting for me only does so much. Mm -hmm. But when you start seeing that protesting actually works in small ways and that there's actually oh, pressure that has been placed on these very strong institutions and systems then you start wondering, it's like, maybe now is the time for everybody to stand up and say something so then we can push it forward. The, right. the question is, is they always say, well, then you open the floodgates where now everybody's uh, issue and everybody's um, discontentment with all kinds of issues is going to be all brought up at the same time. And that's some of the, the, the struggles I was having with an activist friend of mine that I was like, what are the... 
the demands. Because if we demand the whole world, that's going to be impossible for the other side to even process or to take us seriously. But we have to have very um, poignant things that we are Mm -hmm. requesting and helping them achieve that. So uh, I saw the movie Selma, and Martin Luther King said something that I found very profound. He said, um, we make a, a demand, and if they don't respond, we march. And then if they, if they still don't respond, then we bring attention either through the media or we, we put more pressure on the government. So he had a, a tactic and a system that he followed. And every time that, that there was an issue, that they would follow the same system. And then sometimes it was successful and in other times it wasn't, but it was a methodical way to bring about change. I feel right now it's a free for all. I feel like we're back at like the Occupy movement where it's like a leaderless rebellion and it just dissipates easily because they get demonized. So even, so there's also the element of, of being professional. So how do we bring about change within our fields without creating so much ruckus that it's easy for people to say, um, it's not time, it, this is not the right play, uh, who are you? Like, Because marching in the street is one thing, you're bringing pressure on the whole system, but bringing pressure within your field and creating positive change, it, I don't think anybody has figured it out. So uh, in, in your- I, I think, go ahead. Well, just, well, I think there's- Like, what can we do that it that it is constructive versus destructive like uh some people have gotten frustrated and just uh created more in our okay speaking of our field what i i had those thoughts the other day i said and i find that debating is useless it's just useless like to get online and like you have to you uh like i what i did is i identified progressive thinking chaplains uh, that were very fair-minded and were not reactive, were not tone deaf. I identified like five and I said, you know, like if I wanted to push a reform or I think I have to call on the key, key player, key investors who feel like me, who are supportive of, who have my same worldview. And unfortunately right now, uh, let's say in the field of chaplaincy, uh, I, I have to, you know, most of them are white. Most of the people in the places of influence and power are white people. And I think I have to kind of have that approach of, hey, I have this conversation. Can we have a conversation? What do you think I should do? Uh, and, and be aware that they're, they're your allies, they're your helpers. But I wouldn't debate it. I wouldn't make large efforts. I, I would key in on key people that agree with with or that will say you know you're right or you have some good ideas I think it's going to keep people who think who agree with your worldview and who find it uh, fair that what you're saying is fair and I think starting a conversation with them but I think I think debating opinions is just futile you know what I mean like getting on a forum and just kind of that controversy and, and shouting shouting your point out now it, it's pretty much a waste of time you have to really get into conversation with leadership that's that's pretty much it and being a leader and then realizing hey you know what i'm a, I'm a leader here 
and uh, not being afraid to step into that leadership role. Um, and I think having a controversial opinion is not a bad thing. A, a leader is going to, you know, like uh, think of Colin, what's his name? Colin, the football player, Colin, I always forget the last name, Bernick. Colin Knapp. Yeah, you know who I'm talking about. And when he stood up, he was alone. He was the lone uh, uh, protester. And where is he now? So being the lone wolf is, is okay. You're, you're going to be righted. You know, the universe will turn in your favor. I think getting into the key uh, leader and, and having conversation with them, you know, like uh, if, if let's say you and I approach a board or uh, one organization and say, can we have a dialogue or can we, you know, like I was in a Zoom the other day with key leaders in the Hispanic community. Uh, I was invited by my CPE supervisor because COVID-19, uh, and this is the way they moved, the leadership in Memorial Hermann Hospital is, is really kind of calling the alarm about COVID-19 and the Hispanic community. And they didn't have a, a, a huge 500, whatever, a big conference. They just, it was just like 10 of us on a Zoom call. And the, the, basically the Memorial Hermann leadership was asking us, what was our opinion? How is the, how is the, Latino, they don't even know how the Latino community communicates because they're like, why are y'all getting sick? I mean, literally Memorial Hermann executive, public health executive was like, why are y'all getting sick? Like, can't, educate me. Why are y'all getting sick? Are y'all not listening to Telemundo? <laughs> you know? And I went and had this big conversation with my mom and I said, mom, what's going on? And your mom is like, I don't watch Telemundo. <laughs> and then I found out while we were conversing, we as Hispanics are like, a, they, they don't understand us that we're not this monolithic block. You know, there's immigrant immigrations. And then you have like Latinos like me and you that are more like a professional, you know, and we're more attuned to American, do you understand? We're tuned into American society. And then there's this whole vast amount of Latinos who are, turned, who are not paying attention to Telemundo, they're paying attention to Mexico. And then they don't have, they're not on the internet. They can't navigate the internet. They're on WhatsApp. We, he didn't know that the public health executive at Memorial Hermann didn't know that really WhatsApp, it's not Facebook. So it's like from the American mindset, it's like, well, of course I know what's going on with COVID. There's so much information in Facebook because that's what he uses. And I'm like, but you know, Latinos, the bulk of Latinos who are working in taquerias or cutting lawns, they're not listening, looking at Facebook, they're on WhatsApp. And, you know, they're going to fiesta. And then, and then, and then I brought up the point, there's a little bit of machismo too, because a lot of these Men, que son bien Latinos, you know, the, the men, macho Latino, they don't want to put on a mask. I mean, like I went to get my oil change. They were about, you know, and I went to these like Latino shops, you know what I'm talking about, the little kind of, the little shops, not the big discount tire, because I'm trying to get a bargain. So I go to the, like, the little tire shops owned by Latino men. You, know, you understand what I'm, you know what I'm talking about. There are like 12 men, none of them wearing a mask. None of them social distancing. And me and a woman from El Salvador are the only ones wearing a mask. And I told her, I said, look at the, mira los hombres. And she was like, se creen machos, se creen que no. So she and I are like, uh, why are the men not covering up? So we had to, so what I'm saying is, to answer your question, I, I just set this example that he didn't make a big plea to like a lot of people. He just pulled 
10 of us and started having a conversation. So I think in the field of chaplaincy, it's going to be like that. It's going to be, it's going to take maybe taking a, if you, if you know other spiritual care uh, uh, people, Latinos, spiritual care workers, you know, let's get together and have a conversation and then get someone in leadership to kind of advise us or show us or at least hear us. You know, but I think that's how we move forward. I think is is keying in on who who's leading, who who is an influencer, and and as far as you know, again, he approached us, and I I said we all gave him ideas about where why Latinos are getting you know so the information he he knows why they're getting infected. They they just don't understand how to get information out because they don't understand why Latinos are not informed. They seem to be, there's a gap. They don't understand. Like, uh, and I, you know, I've attended COVID death and people are surprised. And one of the things I hear consistently from Latino people that are dying of COVID, they were restaurant workers. They were going to church. And my last patient last week, he was an evangelical Christian that said, no, she's not infected. The blood of Jesus is keeping her you know, like Lysol, you know, the blood of Jesus is Lysol, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, the blood of Jesus, and that was so sad, I mean, I'm not trying to make fun, I mean, that's quite sad, and trust me, I'm, I'm, make, I'm not making fun of it, and I don't mean to, but I, I feel really sad, it, it is a kind of like a funny, tragic thing, because his wife, after I had the conversation with him, his wife died of COVID, and he said, no, she's not infected. I plead the blood of Jesus on her and I plead the blood of Jesus on her every night. She can't be infected. And, and so there's this huge uh, communication gap and that's where he wanted to know. And he wanted to make a call out to pastors because see what happens is in, in, the, in the Hispanic community, you have a huge block of evangelical pastors, Pentecostal, you know, uh, evangelical, and then you have your Protestant, you know, your, your Baptist and Presbyterian, they tend to be more educated, more seminary trained, more formal. And then you have the vast, you know, the, the, the Pentecostal, all those kind of evangelical groups. They're, they're not as, I, I don't know if I'm saying it, what the right word is, but they don't, they don't uh, emphasize uh, educational training. Do you see what I'm saying? Well, and so there's this huge gap. There's an anti-intellectualism from the charismatic movement. Okay, and it's safe to say, it in, is that the way? You see it in all kinds of evangelicals, like even the ones who are seminary trained, they're like, I don't want to hear about this stuff because they fall into the, the fear of, of like, they think everything mm -hmm. is conspiracy theory or the government trying to tell them what to do or something like that. And right. it's sad because you would think that because of, of because you're saying that so the ones that don't have an education, the ones that, have, that do have one, even the ones that have an education choose not to listen to, to scientific information because they think it's almost like a hippie thing. Like if you put on a mask, <laughs> that means that you're a socialist. And it's like, how is that? It? Like, so yeah. it's, it's been very disturbing how easily people have been swayed one side or the other when it's something that affects everyone. Like one thing we've talked about on the show is that no matter your race, your socioeconomic status, even if you wanted to run away to Canada or, or back to Germany or whatever, it would come and get you. The, the coronavirus is that um, difficult of a, of a pandemic that we're all on the same boat. But now we're seeing people that we know and that we come across who are infected. Before, it was kind of like 
something you would hear about in the mm -hmm. in the media now yeah. is, is becoming real to a lot of people right and i i feel that this hispanic community isn't it hasn't dawned on them and and a lot of them are um you know where where the anglo community has has gone and and they can uh quarantine safely at home and they send their shoppers you know well-to-do white people aren't going to heb they're sending instacart you know they're sending drivers out to get their shopping but you know you hispanics they have to go to taqueria they, they're the ones moving all that restaurant that huge industry in houston of restaurant is that's all the hispanics cooking and they're the ones getting sick you know uh, so it is what i was telling him i said well um but th there's demand there's a huge demand for the cooking to happen and who's washing dishes and cooking right now it's the hispanics not, not the black people most people dying of coronavirus is is uh hispanic which shocked me when the the ceo i don't know if this is digress or going into a different direction but the ceo of goya as you heard made, made that comment that he praised donald trump when you know donald trump is a builder <laughs> i'm like he builds what buildings because he certainly cuts down our people and i i find it really odd that and, and here's the thing that i saw in this whole silliness that, that you know we saw presence with with uh when the pandemic first hit we saw heb leader just stood out there he was like the heb bill i mean you know he was so visible where's goya been during the pandemic when it's all the hispanic dying where, where are they do do they come in and i ask people who monitor uh univision or telemundo and i've, and I've said since the pandemic hit have y'all seen the fiesta executives have y'all seen Aranda's executives? Have you seen all the business leaders in Houston take stock, uh, encourage Latinos to wear masks? Have you seen them? They're not donating or, or involved. And I, so the, in our community, there's a lack of corporate, uh, what's the word, corporate responsibility? There's a word for it. There's a, there's not, I don't think that's the right word where the corporation is invested in the welfare of the community. The, I don't see that. I see they're invested in profit. So I feel like the pandemic is really has to shift the uh, the way Hispanics okay. and the community. I think they're just out to get rich. They're not thinking of. I mean, I'm like, hey, who are you going to sell to when all your clientele's dying? When all your clients are dying, who who are you going to sell to? Well, that leads us you know? to and bringing that up leads us to the next aspect of our conversation. Uh, uh, we started the the dialogue about. Uh, having you on the show to talk about when profit takes over the church and you know we see it in a lot of different religions but since the majority of the population in the u.s is christian um what have you seen that it is disturbing because again we don't want to beat up on people we don't want to overly criticize but you just mentioned that right. you know the majority of, of the hispanic population is is christian uh, a lot of people assume that everybody's catholic but it's actually not so true anymore there's a big evangelical movement in latin america and it's coming to america as well so let's say that mm -hmm. it's 30 70 or whatever or you know now there's even um, a lot of hispanics who are not interested in religion so so to assume that every patient that we have who's latino is a catholic is, is a misnomer but when we talk about being in america 
I think that all the, the Christian denominations have realized that the only way you, you not only survive but thrive in America is if you use the corporate model. So what about this idea that um, not only you have to succeed in business, now you have to succeed in the religious world, and that you are looked down uh, upon as someone who is um, spiritually, um, uh, what is the word? Um, you, you're neglecting your spirituality or you're deficient if you're not successful. Uh, where, where do yeah. you think people get this from? Because it seems to be uh, totally in, in contrast with what is taught in the Christian in the gospel. Well, I think they're getting it from like, big influential people like Lakewood, like Joel. And I'm not bashing Joel. I like Joel. I mean, I, I do. I think he's done a lot of good, but I think he, he's just, you know, he's one of the, the prosperity abundance message. I think that's where that's coming from. Um, I also think that for the most part, evangelical Christians that are here are evangelized by Anglo community who's, who's going to, sell the American dream, but they're going to make it biblical, make the American dream of success and prosperity, and you're going to own a house. They're, the Anglos who have evangelized the Latino community are pretty much, have pretty much mixed the message, the, the gospel with the American dream. And that's where we were. I mean, I had a friend who like uh, five years ago, I got really ill. I don't know if I don't know if I had said that to you or mentioned it to you, but I got really sick, and I managed to. Uh, I had to quit my job, and I like I had enough savings that I could live off my savings for two years, and that to me that's prosperous, you know. And the disease brought a whole lot of prosperity in as far as my soul, the, the wealth of my my spirituality, but she put me down. It was kind of strange to me and I'm not, I'm not complaining about it. Um, but she was like, I'm so surprised you should be thriving. You know, and I thought, <laughs> you know, I thought that was very interesting. But again, I, I noticed she was from that perspective of, um, uh, <laughs> okay, this is going to have to be edited out, but she was from the perspective of, the prosperity thing and I told her I said, you know I said I'm very blessed that I went through this illness it's made me a lot more empathetic you know I'm very blessed that I had that I had enough money that I was able to have had enough money to live through for two years my car got paid my you know all my bills and needs were paid I said that's that's a huge that's a great blessing and she saw it as a minus so you know being really it's like as Christians were being permitted to be fully human why was I shamed because I got ill illness is part of the human experience that's part of the suffering that's part of the you know condition in this world we're going to get ill we're going to get old we're going to die and a lot of people seem very uncomfortable to touch that to touch those human uh, experiences and again it's because capitalism you know you have to look like this you have to have this house it's all filtered into the church um and that's very sad you know um there i, I actually have i don't follow as far as latino leaders i actually follow a man from costa costa rica his name is harold segura and he's a, he's an evangelical but he's a he's actually no he's a protestant he's a protestant baptist but he's studying with catholics he's a very interfaith 
very ecumenical minded uh, pastor. And he's a writer, he's an influential, um, but he's wise. He's a very, he, he, he's also a leader, uh, but he's not a capitalist. He's, a, he's got a very, uh, he wrote, he, he's written several books. He wrote a book on child theology. He has a new book out that's called The Revolution of Tenderness, where he's talking about empathy being the next revolution that we need in the world, the re revolution of empathy. And it starts with being empathetic with children. And isn't that interesting? You know, it is some kind of model about success and all that. It's just, it's basically talking about uh, being empathetic to children. It's how we're going to really revolutionize the world. He, he's an innovator. Um, he also wrote a book about just the economic model that he feels from all his study in theology. He's, a, he's been a theology professor uh, he's got his doctorate in theology right now, um, but you know he wrote a book on the whole that what is a fair economic vision, and he took it from the Bible. So he's a thinker that I'm tuning into. I'm not tuning into Spanish leaders in America because they all want me to have a big house. They all want me to be, you know, have no gray hair. They all want me to, <laughs> you know. So I'm following the the vision of the latin american leaders and they're cycling out liberation theology they understand liberation theology it went wrong in my country okay and liberation theology was not meant to be revolution like uh you know uh or you, you the image people get is ernesto cardenal uh, the priest that he was actually out, you know, he, he felt it's okay to have a gun and shoot people. You know, so liberation theology had its extremists, but I think uh, Gustavo Gutierrez's work was, was not as extremist as that. He wasn't a radical uh, take up guns and fight. He, that was not, that's not the message there. But for some reason in Nicaragua, because there was an active revolution, they applied it that way. You know, not a, lot of a lot of times theology will be applied in the context where people are. People will read and project their own politics into the theology, you know, which has happened here in America with capitalism. You know, people have projected the gospel as, as having a house and guaranteeing you long, prosperous life, no illness. And, you know, that, that's not promised. That's not promised to any of us. I hope and I pray, <laughs> but it isn't a guarantee, you know. So when someone that comes from that mindset ends up in the hospital, do you see that they are disappointed in themselves or in God that all these promises that they've been bumped up with are not um, flushing out the way that they expected them? Is that why you see that people might not be interested in, in talking to a chaplain or they might have a, a faith um, crisis because they end up getting a, a horrible illness or have a tragic accident and it wasn't in the cards for them based on what they were hearing from their preacher? You, you know, my experience, David, honestly, is that when I encounter like Hispanic patients that have had that, they're very humbled. I find that Hispanics are, are they're not very entitled. Like, they're, like what I've experienced, I have never seen a Hispanic like shake their fist at heaven and, and like, why you have me here? Like I, I have almost felt, I almost would say I, I've not encountered a patient that has ever shaken their fist. Like I feel there's almost a, 
a reverence and a fear. Like, you know, I honestly can tell you, and I, and I serve in a public hospital with very poor people. They don't, they don't have anything, you know, they're, they're, I mean, I see homeless people, you know, people that are basically off the street in, in the hospital. So they're very humble, they have a very humble attitude. I've never encountered anybody shaking their fist at God being, I've also noticed that the, in my approach, the chaplain has, I really believe that the patient is like when I had a disease, when I was ill, I, the, to me, the illness was a teacher. And I, I hear that consistently from a lot of my patients that, that they feel that the illness was, was given as a teacher. I've, I mean, I've almost heard them say, Dios me mandó, you know, esta condición para, para hacerme pensar. You know, like God sent me this condition so I could reflect. I've heard that way more than any shame of the fist. But again, maybe my context, they're just happy to have a bed. So I don't run into a lot of very prosperous Hispanic. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't see that many of them in my hospital, you know. It's, it's really people who are not doing very well, you know. I think it's too personal. Or they don't have a yeah. I've had uh, a couple of friends who were very uh, excited and they felt very empowered to do uh, outreach ministry and to have this evangelical mindset when it came down to helping people. So not only being involved helping the, the poor, the, the underprivileged, but that it was, um, it was a double um, mission. It was a mission to, to raise them up, to give them dignity and love on them and to share the, the message of, of Jesus and the gospel. And then a few years pass, and I hear that they are no longer interested in that anymore, that now it's only about the providing the needs and, and helping the person in their emotional and psychological well-being, and that this, this uh, evangelistic uh, component has dropped off because of some type of disappointment, because of some type of um, feeling um, burned out or left out on the cold by these evangelical groups. Can you tell me where that comes from? What is the, um, you know, it's hard to find religious groups that are deep, that, that have all the elements. And I know people will talk about the, the Catholic health workers and groups like that, but I see issues with every group either they're too socially minded and not enough spiritually minded or the other way around. But what is it about the evangelical perspective that makes people completely drop it or feel disenfranchised? Because I know we're talking about the prosperity thing, but there's something else that do you think that they, there's too much emphasis on the, on like we're talking about the, the um, mental and verbal uh, assent to theological doctrines and that yes. maybe that's yeah. what creates the problem yeah. or is it the yeah, pressure so. that you can't help someone unless you give them there's the spiel the salvation and you gotta you gotta save the them they gotta get saved and there's also the, the judgment um th there's also doctrinal things um they have to believe this they have to believe that and and uh that's just way too much baggage you know i mean that's that makes it hard to reach out to to people because how can you love people? How can you be truly practicing love when it's conditional? 
you're selling people a doc you're basically attaching it you're slapping a doctrine on with the bread that doesn't it doesn't work that way you know when you know you you give freely give from 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 your heart and if they you plant a seed if they choose it fine but these groups are i think these groups are very it's just very legalistic very judgmental and you people burn out you know people i don't i mean i belong to those groups too you know i've <laughs> i have walked journeyed through uh a quite a lot of of these groups and, and finally i'm i'm kind of uh you know before it was very shaming to say you're a cafeteria christian now i'm like proudly a cafeteria christian you know i have to have a spirituality of my own and it doesn't mean that i don't respect traditions or i have them but i i think like you i've just been burned and disappointed and um you know i find that i i can connect to god through uh the catholic tradition but not because but I'm not a follower of doctrines and dogmas. It, for me, it's the the, the Eucharist. I, I have to kind of put a blind, you know. And I, right now, I find myself. My spirituality is: I go to the museums a lot. I go to nature a lot. I go to the Catholic Mass and do a ritual. The Rothko Chapel is my church as much as the Catholic Mass. And I'll do Mass at three churches. <laughs> So I have my own little, you know, uh, way, my own little program that works for me. And sometimes I have a healing arts circle at, you know, at, at where we're not meeting because uh, of COVID, but I had a healing arts circle and that's where I was meeting God many Sundays. And uh, I was going to, I would go to uh, the Methodist church where we had an amazing teacher um, and he's, he's a far, far amazing uh he's a Jungian psychologist but also a, a, a teacher a, a Sunday school teacher and um you know I, I was listening to him and then I would go and walk across to the the museum of art and then do my healing circle that was my Sunday you know all these practices um art is a huge spirituality for me I meet God through art I'm not as and not as a you know, through now being a Christian 30 years, I'm not as dogmatic anymore and, and, and doctrinal, but a lot of people still are, and they like it. They, li they feel safe in those doctrines. It gives them structure and safety. I don't, you know, I mean, I live a clean life uh, according to my belief but but some people really they have a sense of shame and guilt that they still have very much locked in and they want to continue getting sanctified <laughs> you know and uh and i'm like going backwards i'm trying to be more human <laughs> you know human in the sense of uh more in touch with the fact that i get ill that i will die that i'll get old you know that those things and and integrating that with with how i meet god in these thresholds of life I'm getting more human in that way. But Christians, a lot of these groups, they want to grow holier. And it's frustrating to try to grow holier because we meet ourselves and, and it's like, whoops, you know. And we have to heal. A lot of these groups, don't, they don't do very, healing very well. You know, it's always the blood of Jesus, shh, shh, you know, the blood of Jesus. And, and these people have war, wounds of trauma from their countries, wounds of from their childhood, from uh, Mexico. I'm not saying this in a 
in a, uh, my country is a violent country. Mexico has a lot of violence. There's just been a lot of trauma. And, um, you know, I can, I can say that like in our experience, my, my mom, uh, bless her, but you know, mama won't touch her own trauma from our war in Nicaragua. It's all in the past. Jesus washed it away. The blood of Jesus, you know, and I've, I've always come to her and say, mom, you know, you might need to like spend some time in healing with a counselor like I did, but she doesn't, you know, that's just like, no, the blood of Jesus, the past it's, but I, but things surface things come to the surface and people want to doctrine themselves into holiness, but really meeting God is a healing. It's a internally uh, in here in the heart and healing the wounds. And that's how we meet God more than, you know, following this rule or that rule. But um, I think it's just a stage of, it's like a develop. Remember in chaplaincy, we, you, your supervisor, I, at least I remember mine that we were shown the stages in family theory, family, um, you know, when we had that section of uh, family theory, how families are shaped, and we have all the stages of development, you know, I think it's, I think there's a stage of development spiritually where people have to have the structure of doctrines and dogmas. And then you kind of, you kind of see that you, you don't need it, you know, you're, you're more safer in the love of God. And, and you stay in the love of God, you don't need all these doctrines. But I think it's a doctrinal issue that burns people out. People don't know how to live in the in the mystic way, and and the mystic way is for everybody. You know, it's not just me. <laughs> you, you know, people don't know how to live in the Book of John. You know, um, the Book of John is so mystical, so beautiful. You know, about uh, living in this spirituality of heart and and love and empathy, and and people want to live on in, in doctrines. I don't know what it is about humans that I don't want that <laughs> you know I want to have communion with with the heart and really be centered in my heart and practice and living my Christianity from that uh, place not from you know all these rules and you can't do that I can't go to this party anymore you have to tell them that Jesus is going to save them and um, you know I, I don't mean to you know it's just not something that I feel is important you know I think what's really interesting is that Harold uh, said well, this pastor I was telling you about he actually does a conference on that he actually is doing outreach to the evangelical world and I heard this conference and that's where I became a follower like oh my god this guy's saying what I felt he's like hello everybody he's he considers himself evangelical in his approach even though he's Baptist but he said something that I went whoa but he said to a conference to pastors, he goes, guess what? Newsflash, we're not going to win the world for Jesus. We're not. So stop it. The world isn't going to be one to the Lord. We have to now, our approach is that we have to be engaging with the world. And we're going to engage with the world by knowing social science, by understanding the world better through the language that the world speaks. We have to understand leadership as the world understands it. So he's, he's not saying for people to be worldly, but he's telling uh, pastors to be off the world, to be sophisticated and understand psychology and social science and anthropology. And, and, and it's like, wow, he's, there you go. Not just, we gotta win everybody. He's like, newsflash, do you see your country? You, 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 
you were not, not everybody's serving Jesus in Peru, not everybody's serving Jesus in Costa Rica. And guess what? It's not going to happen. And he just boldly says it. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's true. Are we, why have the evangelical world been so afraid to accept that? The world doesn't have to all be won over for Christ. And there's a sense of guilt and shame about that. Why? You know, we have to learn to speak wisely to our, um, to our generation, but we don't have to win them. You know, so I like that because it's like a lot like the Jewish approach. Jewish people are not evangelizing. They're not proselytizing. You, you want to be a Jewish then come talk to us, but we don't have to win you. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's nice and refreshing if the church could do that. It's like, let it go. We have this burden on you that you've got to win everybody. No, you don't. I know. Does that sound <laughs> kind of strange, huh? <laughs> it's refreshing because for me, it would be like, before you go out and tell everybody to join the club, why don't you fix the problems within the club and try to make it more healthy and yeah. thriving? And then you can yeah. start bringing in new members. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And he said it. I mean, I have never heard something so freeing, uh, a preaching so freeing. I was like, oh, my God, he just said he just put his finger on the biggest sense of shame that pastors have. Win, win, get win people. It's like, no, you don't. And you notice and he went on through like recent history from 30 years back in Latin America, where Latin America has has managed to place evangelical leaders like in positions of, of power, like presidential candidates have been evangelical. And he's like, and guess what? Colombia had an evangelical, he, he goes on in and he goes through the whole countries in Latin America and he goes, and guess what? And the judge so-and-so was evangelical. And guess what? That country's still lost or that country's still how it was. So, so stop it. You know, he was like, stop trying to win the world you know be okay uh figure out how to converse and and he has a bible uh, he's part of a, a biblia virtual biblia and they, they're centered on Argentina. they have some fascinating minds i'm telling you i'm not looking at anything theological in this country my interest right now is as i get my teacher certification to teach the living, uh, loving, loving, uh, dying and letting go for the Institute of uh, Birth, Breath, and Death. I want to go teach over there because they're needing this. They're needing this kind of teaching, because hospices, chaplaincy—that's not very. Uh, that's not a field that's understood very well in Latin America. So I was listening to a podcast the other day about a, a woman, a hospice chaplain in Argentina, and she was saying that there's a need. There's a huge need for this field in, in those countries. So here in, in uh, Houston, I'm not seeing a whole lot of us Latino chaplains, you know, but I'm seeing that there could be an increase in uh, places like Costa Rica, Venezuela, but I will go do, I will go do like the workshops and and hospitals there and maybe teach nurses and volunteers and my, my hope would be to network with some of these pastors evangelical which i hope to network with with pastor harold 
and present the the idea of death, I think he would be very open. He would be very open. You know, as an as a Baptist pastor, he does podcasts like this with priests, with Catholic priests, and he's invited by Catholic archdiocese in different countries to speak. So I mean he's 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 a he he's breaking down fences. And um that's that's kind of how I am too. I want to be a person that's not in my own little fence, you know, like I said, I'm I'm in a Methodist church and then I'll go to the museum and then you know I'm kind of you know I branch out of my own house. Uh, before we end our conversation, can you tell us a little bit about what does hospice mean to most Latin Americans? Um, we were we were in a call and we had a, a Latina. Um, you know how in hospice they have the the people that promote the hospice marketer, and she's like, mm -hmm. you need to change the the term hospice because hospice, in the people that she was dealing with, she was in California, meant um, an orphanage. Have you ever heard people say that that a hospice or hospicio means kind of like a place where you leave people to like i think of it as as like you know there's um a hostel there's a hospital and there is a hospice so i think people mm -hmm. in latin america still mm -hmm. have like the medieval mentality where that's where you drop off uh vagrants and people that you don't want to deal with and the church handles them H have you come across that um no no again i think she probably hasn't heard what's going on and i wonder if she has heard what's going on in latin america because i don't think they see that she may be saying that from her understanding but i don't like the woman uh i could give you the link if, so you can listen to the podcast she didn't have any problems with that word and she's in argentina so i don't i don't think so i have maybe for her it rang strange, but uh, I don't see that being a problem. I think they need more advocacy as to what a spiritual care worker does at the time of dying. I think they just need to, they need more, more help understanding that because there, there's just not, there's just not much. They're, they don't, they own, they have psychologists, but they don't have spiritual care workers. They're, that's just something that's a, a field that's what I think in my mindset is, is wide open. Um, and I don't think that that word would be an issue, in my in my opinion. You know, I'm not sure why. Maybe I'm I'm not sure why she would think that. Yeah. Well, we want to thank you for your time. Uh, it's been very um, informative uh, conversation, and um, I just think that we need to allow more voices and more different approaches to to be available. So then. Um, we have um, that diversity that people talk about. It's like diversity was like a thing like 10 years ago where they needed to um, bring in diversity and then it kind of faded away. And again, if you don't address the issues, then they come up in non-constructive ways. So we're, we're trying to, to lift up the, the field that we're part of and give it more, yeah. um, let's like fill in the gaps. Like um, if, if there are cultural things, um, even linguistic and, um, and societal things that are they're not being taken into account. We want to be able to speak up and um, be an advocate for the people that, that might not have uh, part of the pie or don't have uh, access to those resources. So 
I like your approach of, of contacting like-minded people who are already in the institution and then building bridges with their help so then there, there's better opportunities for people in the future. Yeah, and peacefully. I mean, I, I agree with you. There's no need for us to go and, you know, like flip chairs and, <laughs> you know, we need to, to do the work peacefully, right? <laughs> but, um, but I agree. So thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed this discussion. I hope to hear. So send me the link to, and I may post it somewhere, <laughs> maybe in my own Facebook page <laughs> or who knows. Definitely. If you don't want me to, that's fine. <laughs> uh, uh, I wanted to go out. I want more people to listen to the show. So, so thank you for okay. your time.